Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. And welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact with The Telegraph and Remy Martin. Coming up, the Autumn Internationals got underway this weekend and to discuss it all, we're speaking with England's Kieran Bracken, Ireland's Paddy Wallace, Wales' David James and the women's coach Gary Street. But first this week, I'm joined in the studio by the former Scotland scrum half, Rory Lawson. Rory, hello, how are you? Yeah, very well, thanks, Brian. Delighted to be here. You made a point off air about the Autumn Internationals, the start of them, the fixture. What's your view on on the challenges of, the, of an opening game? Look, I think in general, there, there wasn't masses of rugby that had us on the edge of our seats over the weekend. They, they were all interesting. They're all, they all had compelling facets to them. And there's been plenty of discussions off the back of it. But I don't think anybody really hit their straps. Uh, none of the visiting, well, South Africa, I don't think were right on top of their game. Um, certainly in the, in the first half, they had multiple opportunities. And I think obviously the other games, when it's the, the all Northern Hemisphere with Scotland down in Cardiff and Italy and Ireland over in the States, you're playing familiar opposition. It's all a little bit alien, and it pretty much went to prediction. I would say. Okay, well, we'll be discussing uh, the games in detail with the representatives of some of those countries, and you'll obviously be batting for Scotland. So we'll come on to that later. Obviously, the England one finished in controversial circumstances, but as a whole, England were not expected. I don't think to win that game. I don't care what anyone says. The disruption with the uh, injuries, the fact that they had a back row with 10 caps makes you front row against a team that had played very well in the rugby championship. People were talking about England being lucky and so on. To me, if Malcolm Marks misses three line-out throws, that's a matter for him and South Africa. It's not a question of luck. You know, England had to defend as well. Were you um, surprised at the way in which South Africa seemed to be incoherent? Look, I think if you look at the stats, at the end of the first half, England had 22% territory and 33% possession. Now, you don't look at the halftime score and think that, that that would have been the case. South Africa had a number of opportunities. If they had been at their ruthless best, you'd expect they would take a few more. If it had been a 15-point lead at halftime, would anybody really been able to argue that much? I'm not sure. Probably not, especially as England went down to 14 men. Yeah, absolutely. And I, But look, I think... Much like in the Six Nations, the first games matter, 
but the, the the performance matters less than the results. Ultimately, if you get the result right, you've got something to build on, and yeah. you can you've got the momentum. It's more so probably in in the Six Nations, but for England, the result mattered so so much. It was gutsy. They were resilient. They were tenacious throughout. It was a really bruising encounter, mm. just exactly as you'd, you'd expect with England playing against South Africa. They were opportunistic. Were they lucky? I'm not sure, but I think Gary Jones found out a bit about a few of the experienced players and probably more so about some of the guys who have had opportunities through the injuries. Yeah. Well, I didn't expect the England scrum to stand up as well as it did. In the end, I thought Carl Sinclair had a claim for man of the match. I don't demure from Wilson being chosen because he had a good game as well. But, I mean, England could probably and probably should have scored one try at the end of the day, look, this all came down, didn't it, to the last second issue with Owen Farrell. Before I give my spiel, what, what was your view of that? Oh, I've, I've read so many different <laughs> opinions. And I'm not sure. I, I don't think I remember one that split opinion so widely. My view on it is that Owen Farrell's tackle technique le- leaves him open to being vulnerable. Mm. He, when, when you look at it, it's his right shoulder and his right arm is down by his side. So yes, he gets off on the fact that the referee thought, Angus Gardner thought that he was going to wrap after the collision. And let's not get away from the fact it was an almighty collision. It was a big man running into another big man who was primed ready for the shot. But for me, when you've got your, sh- your arm by your side, that doesn't show intent to wrap for me. And the collision, the collision, I've not got an issue with the collision height necessarily, but I do think there is a strong argument to say it's a no-arms tackle and that it would be a penalty. Yellow card, I don't, I, I'm not sure, but penalty, for, I, I do think it would definitely be a penalty. I'm not surprised that it's not gone to the sighting commissioner because in order to do that, I think it has to be a red card offence. Yes. And I don't think it was a red card offence, but I do think it was a penalty. Well, my view is that either that and the earlier challenge by R.G. Snayman on Cruz, which was definitely not an attempted tackle. That was definitely a shoulder which contacted above the uh, shoulder of Cruz. They were both either penalties with a sanction, possibly a red in Snayman's case, possibly a yellow in Farrell's case, or they weren't either. Now, everyone talks about referees and they say, we want consistency on this law. Well, when Gardner showed consistency, and I thought he was too lenient on both of them, probably then people are then moaning as well. So, I mean, he can't win, can he? My, my view is Southern Hemisphere referees referee things slightly differently, right? And it's been right front and centre for all of the Northern Hemisphere referees for the first seven rounds of the... the mm-hmm. Six, seven rounds of the Premiership. For and the Europe. A couple, couple of rounds of Europe. There have been significant red cards for very similar offences. And you, you, you hit the nail on the head. Consistency is important. But then consistency between Southern Hemisphere and Northern Hemisphere officiating is also important. And it I, is. And I, I do think that, you know, we, we've got to, there needs to be a flurry of referees' decisions that change behaviours. And well, I, I don't, the brutality of rugby is something that is so interesting. But at the same time, head, head injuries, uh, we, can't, we can't get away from that. And I think we need to be doing everything you can to reduce I understand them. that. But if that's the case, then the Southern Hemisphere... Referees have to get in line with their Northern Hemisphere compatriots because that is the way I understand that World Rugby are intent on driving the tackle height lower. My opinion is that until they bring in as law the trial, which is a nipple height, 
players are still going to risk hitting, you know, above the nipple but below the shoulder with all the concomitant risks of getting it wrong, of sliding up, etc., etc., etc. So unless they do that, they're not going to drive it down as quickly as they think they should be doing. But the Southern Hemisphere refs have to ref more strictly on this if you want some consistency, because I don't think it can be the other way around. No, I, I totally agree. I, I think, you know, it, it might be a little bit of a stereotype, but the Southern, here, Southern Hemisphere referees, the Islanders have been known for those big shots in mm. around the chest historically. Maybe they are more lenient because there are more big collisions with just big men that is a rugby collision. When it comes back to the Owen Farrell one, I, I do think when your arm's by your side, you leave yourself very open to being punished. Andreas Esterhuizen, I think, could probably have put a little bit more footwork in and we might have never never have come to this scenario. But as it is, I think the magnitude, when you, com- when you compare it to the, the collision earlier on in the game and the consistency in the decision around that, the magnitude of that decision with the clock gone red... Oh no, and Farrell just made made it the headline act and something that we're we're going to continue to to talk about. So I'm sure the referee reviews they will have discussed it for a significant time. As I say, I think Eddie Jones learned a lot about his players. Four of the pack made their home international debuts. Another two off the bench. I thought Mark Wilson, as a former Newcastle teammate of mine, he had a good game. It, it, it was so well suited to him. He's he's got proper mongrel in him, but he's got he's got a, a real bit about him, and he and he played very well. The South Africans will be kicking themselves not converting their first half opportunities but they, I think they will get better with Faf de Klerk coming back and Willie LaRue. So I think the other teams that are preparing South Africa are a different prospect with those yeah. two playing. OK, why don't we speak to Kieran Bracken, the former England scrum half, to see what he thought about it. Good evening, Kieran. Good evening, chaps. Are you shocked at England's win? Yes, I was there. I, I mean, the first half, it was the most dominant display I've seen in international rugby for a long time. It's like watching the All Blacks playing a, a lower tier team. It was just incredible. They had the, so much possession and um, amazingly, a lot of people talked about the South African hooker being the best in the world. I mean, you, you know better than anyone. I mean, I don't know why they tried to throw it to the back, but a few line-out throws went amiss and then a, a few line-out drives were taken down. So it was just luck more than anything that we stood in there. But I was, I was so pleased with the way they came out with Endeavour in the second half and tried to play and they looked more dangerous but it's um, it's good signs for England especially some of the young players coming through who I thought were outstanding Well he's got more problems in this sense and the welcome problems he knows that some of the players that he didn't know anything about have the potential to play uh, international rugby and start some of them some of them squad players but yeah. given the number of injuries he's got is he any nearer understanding what his best 15-23 would be well, I kind of, I kind of feel that the great thing is moving into the World Cup. That um, it's great that other people like Wilson get the chance. Brad Shields for me was the first time stood up to be counted. So, yes, I think he's he's grooming young players, and and for me, world class players. And there's there's very few that we have, but but Billy Van Apolo would be one of them. So you can imagine that these players who may be starting now probably be on the bench to someone like him and then can, can can come on but it's it's interesting you know people talk about you really need a settled side before the World Cup I'm not sure necessarily you do I know he's 
painting a picture of needing excuses potentially of, of, of so many few cats. But but you know what? Once you get a few wins, I mean, it'd be great this weekend. It would be amazing if we could win. And, and they do have an outside chance because the domination that South Africa showed against New Zealand a few weeks back um, and they ended up winning the game was probably from the dominance up front and, and the power that they had. So they can do that against anyone. And England withstood that. And so against the All Blacks, you just never know. If we can have some power and pace there, it might be fantastic. This weekend could be amazing. We could scrape, scrape a win and bring on the World Cup. What about the ford farrell axis? Because when uh, things changed and they loosened up later on, they looked more fluent. But then a lot of the hard work had been done by that point. And although people said that Teo didn't do much, what he did was this. Dale Endy was probably the South Africa's best player. He made a lot of ground, but he never really got away completely because Teo hung on to him. And there were a lot of big yeah. collisions that he was involved in, you know, in bringing him down. So a lot of the hard work had been done. Do you think he would be wise to start again trying the Farrell at 10 with, with a big centre or should he go back to the Ford Farrell? I mean, I, I interpreted the game very differently to what I read in some of the papers when they were marking uh, Ben Teo out of 10. I actually think he did okay having not played too much rugby. Their opposite number dancing was dancing inside him to some extent and then was getting sort of missed tackles by I think Hartley and a couple of other people every now and again. I don't think it was necessarily Ben Teo but I thought it it looked a little bit better especially with Slade as well. I really liked it. I'll tell you why. I, I think you need you need a physical presence at 10 in my mind and, and Farrell's got that and Ford hasn't got that and I don't feel that the 10-12 axis in the last 12 months has worked and it's about time we went back to basics and, and, and get over the advantage line and I think the combination worked really well. I think Ford came on, he did okay. Um, I mean, he, he lost the ball once, um, he got held up and and, um, and to you know, in my mind, I think if you're going to bring someone on, someone like Cipriani would have been the answer, bring a bit of magic to it. So I, I do think the 10-12 axis is, is something that he's parked and he's looking at something else. And I think it's it will suit England better. Hi, Kieran. Rory Lawson here. Hi, Rory. Just a, a quick one on, on England in general. You, you talk about that 10-12 that axis. England kicked the ball 35 times from hand on Saturday and they're coming up against undis- the undisputed best counter-attacking team in the world this weekend. How do you think England go about doing enough to beat New Zealand? Is that kicking game the right way to go about it? And is it if if that is the case, how important is it that they're not kicking ball away without being accurate? No, 100%. I mean, yes, there's a lot of kicks. And I, I did think Ben Youngs especially and, and Danny Kerr when he came on, their box kicking was very good and made it a 50-50 but, ball. But, but in the past, we've kicked very deep. I think some of Farrell's kicks were a sort of almost aimless just kick it because we've got nothing else to do but you're right against the All Blacks I mean the last thing you want to do is give them any possession and you've got to be comfortable holding on to the ball rather than kicking it away I think if anything what England will try to do is that when they kick the ball they want the ball off the park you have to find touch or at least get the ball on the floor behind them into touch if you start kicking to them and giving them the opportunity to counter-attack, then there's no more dangerous team. So I think you're right. They will certainly change their tactic in that respect and rather the ball off the park and try and challenge them in the line-out. But it'll be interesting to see what the stats will be after this game because I very much doubt that they would be kicking down their throats, like you say. 
Just a final one, Kieran. If Manu Tulangi is fit, should he start? Oh, well, you know, I thought it was the right decision, actually. Strangely, I was I was shocked when Tulangi was called to be on the bench before he got injured and then Ben Teo starting. I thought to myself, why has he done that? Because Teo's actually played less rugby. He's played 28 minutes of rugby. But I could understand the thinking because the idea would be get Ben Teo in there, do as, as, as well as he can, and then bring the powerhouse on and see what he can do when people are a bit more tired. So for, for this weekend, uh, you know, it'd be interesting to see what I, I think. I think it's probably stick to the same if it worked. Bring Tulangi on later on because he has the X factor. He is a game changer. He is, for me, a world-class player if he's fit. And sometimes when you have a world-class player who's fit, you're starting them, you know, it sometimes doesn't work, but actually when you bring them on, it makes a massive difference. So I could see the thinking. I think they'll probably think the same way again and it'd be great to see him back on form. Kieran, that's great. We'll have to leave it there. Thank you very much. Pleasure, guys. Cheers, Kieran. Kieran Bracken, former England scrum half. Well, we'll be speaking to David James, the former Wales and Lions wing, fairly shortly. But uh, look, the the Doddy Weir Cup can't get over the emotion of the occasion. Do you think that had anything? To do? Well, how does that affect the Scots? Well, it's affected them incredibly positively at Murrayfield last year against against the All Blacks I think it was when he when he carried the the match ball out and mm-hmm. um under the under the darkness of a November evening and the crowd got fully involved the players remember John Barkley shaking his hand in the middle and it was an incredibly emotional occasion it was another emotional occasion at the, at the weekend and I think like the the Doddy Weir Cup and the inaugural Doddy Weir Cup was an an important international. I think the the players bought, brought in bought into it. Um, ultimately, it's a it's a courageous defiance of a very very cruel disease. And Doddy took it exactly as you'd expect with with humour and humility and laughter. And I think it was it was right that that both unions contributed to his foundation. Did it affect the players? I don't. Th- I don't think so. I believe that Scotland's first half was poor. They went behind, and when you go behind down in Cardiff, and you don't take your opportunities when they come around, you're rarely going to leave um, in credit. And I think for Scotland, it was it was a challenge that they fell off a little bit. Um, I thought the crowd was fantastic to have over 60,000 there for a game outside of the window was brilliant. Um, but Gregor Townsend will be frustrated because I don't think that was a true reflection of where Scotland are. Well, Gregor Townsend said it was the defensive lapses that cost them the game. But to me, it was as much the Welsh defence when Scotland actually came into their own later on and the fact that Scotland couldn't put away and couldn't create the chances that you know, they would have you know, wished to do. Yeah, definitely. Look, when you look at the stats again, Scotland, 60% territory, 64% possession, and they're losing the game 21-10. It's the Welsh, the Welsh defence operated at 91%, anything over 90. Most defensive coaches will take that. They had an unyielding defensive line. Um, but you've got to then question Scotland's attack. It, it didn't have the sharpness that it needed to have to break Wales down. But at the same time, they're missing uh, Russell and Hogg, though, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. And you know, both of them are are back in the squad for the coming weekend, which is which is great for Scottish fans. But I think it was a great opportunity to see more of Adam Hastings. It's another step up for him playing against a quality defence like Wales. But let's not get away from the fact Scotland had. 
two tries that they you know that were that were disallowed and non tries. Johnny Gray's for a double movement. You know he's an inch short of the line and he and he goes for it. It was it was a penalty, but it was not far off a five or seven pointer. And then Pete Horn latching onto his younger brother's little dink over the top and. I say nine times out of ten he takes that and he dots down and scores it and Scotland are are back in the match. Look, I think for Gregor, he found out a bit about his squad. I think uh, Hamish Watson was at his Trojan-like best. Alex Dunbar, great to see him back in a Scotland jersey and Stuart McAnally in the captain's role um, took it on. Um, But ultimately, a couple of defensive lapses. Hugh Jones will be disappointed being at fault for both the tries and George North and Jonathan Davies just showed that Given the space and opportunity, they can be ruthless. I mean, I hate to uh, to say this because I don't actually believe it, but when you're talking about taking positives out of a game, do you think there were enough for Gregor Townsend? Were there enough for you for Scotland? I was I was disappointed with the performance. I was disappointed with with the the spectator experience from behind the TV because it wasn't a high quality game of international rugby that I necessarily expected you know the neither side was terribly disciplined 25 penalties Scotland had quite a high turnover rate um, but it was a learning experience it was something that I'm sure everybody w- would have wanted to go better but for Scotland they've now got three matches at Murrayfield and they'll be targeting three from three from those um, with their full squad. And I think, you know, we, we always try and look at glass half full, Brian, as Scots. <laughs> and I think Gregor will look at it and say, let's park that result. And we've got three home games now to try and generate three wins. Well, why don't we get a counterpoint, which is available to us because we are able to speak to David James, the former Wales and Lions wing. Hello, David. Hello there, guys. How are you this evening? Hey, yeah, great. Great to speak to you. Look, um, did Wales ever get going properly, in your opinion? No, not really. I thought it was a lacklustre performance. It was a pretty dull game. But, yeah, look, from a Welsh perspective, we haven't won in the Autumn Internationals the first game for quite some time. So it always takes us a little bit of time to get into our stride, so to speak. And, um, you know, it's good to get a win. Uh, it seemed like it was a good occasion for Doddy Weir. But, you know, let's be, be frank about it. It wasn't the best of games, but uh, it was a win. Uh, the fact that Wales uh, defended so well when Scotland came back into the game, that will have please Warren Gatland what, well, I know Warren has a strange sort of attitude to the Autumns um, what, what do you think he's trying to get out of them oh, well I think he's trying to blood in a few players on um, you know what is it less than a year now really is it to the to the World Cup so yeah. he wants to see what he has at his full disposal I think you know he's quite a shrewd character isn't he I think uh, Wales pride themselves on the defence that's with Sean Edwards uh, at the helm there really but yeah, I think he's just trying to see what options he has available to himself, really, if a couple of his key players go down injured. And, you know, he, he's going to try and blood players in. I think uh, there's a bit of tongue-in-cheek that he doesn't take a lot of interest in them. I think he wants to get the results, and the, the results are what people judge you on. And Duff, uh, your your area of expertise in the back three, you talk about the, the opportunities for some youngsters. Luke Morgan, starved of possession, really, so we didn't really get to, to see him at... Uh, at his capable best. But the other two, George North and Lee Halfpenny, look to be on cracking form. George North, obviously, back playing rugby in Wales and looked as sharp and powerful as ever. Yeah, yeah, George North looked uh, back to his old self, really. And uh, yeah, Lee Halfpenny was impeccable with his with his kicking abilities, as as you'd expect. But I did feel a little bit for Luke. 
he looked uh, a little bit star starstruck, really uh, rabbits in the headlights on occasion. But he didn't have any opportunities, which was a bit disappointing from his point of view. And you know, to get uh, pulled off towards the end of the game is is a bit disappointing there for him. But um, I'm sure he'll bounce back. But yeah, from the back three perspective, if you look at the two that you named there, they played well. And uh, George North showed exactly what he can do, given a little bit of ball. And he created a couple of opportunities, but his, his try he finished off exceptionally well, beating three defenders, I think he was. So, fantastic. De- David, one of the things that is, is raging, I know him well, is a debate over who should take the 10 shirt, who should start. Various options. Where do you, Should Anscombe be the man or someone else? Well, I th- you know, Rhys Patcher has been injured, hasn't he, really? I, w- I would have picked him as the, the start 10 uh, if, he was, if he was fully fit, but uh, unfortunately he isn't. Um, there's a debate whether Hansom should play uh, fullback or, or 10. But look, I think he controlled it reasonably well on the weekend. Um, he has fits and starts, really. And, uh, you know, uh, take your hat off to him. He, he seems to pull out the odd performance and uh, he, he surprises a lot of the Welsh public. So, yeah, I'd, I'd probably stick with him. Um, he, you know, I think he, he's probably a consistent player, really. And, uh, you know, we've got to try and look to see if we can get the, the back three uh, with a lot more possession, really. They're not uh, getting a massive amount of possession, but, you know, I think Hanscom may be able to uh, open the door, really, for them. And Daph, uh, finally from me, with with the loss of Sam Warburton and his, his leadership within that Welsh squad, how, uh, how heartwarming was it to see Dan Lydiat back after a tough time with uh, a long-term injury, 23 tackles at the weekend, none missed. It was a, a game that was right up his street and he, he looked to really enjoy it. Yeah, it's good to see him back, really. He's a good player. Um, you know, he's been missed a little bit and um, he's gone down to the Ospreys and he's got injured and he, he hasn't really got into his stride. But uh, I've seen him last week uh, playing against Connaught he he done his his job well, uh, very good workman performance, and you know he he, he come back. He said it was a, a revitalised, um, well, a bit of breath of fresh air for him really to come back and a, and a fresh clean sheet, so to speak. So yeah, it was good to see him back. And like you like you've just touched upon there, there's a, there's a couple of options in the back row as well, really for Wales. It's not a lot of options with number eight at the moment, you know, with the injuries that we got, but. Uh, I think uh, in six and seven, in particular, then there's a there's a couple of players that can fit in. But uh, yeah, Lydia played uh, exceptionally well with uh, 23 titles. Uh, David, can you want to have a, just a final word on uh, Gethin Jenkins, retired after a long, long, long and very successful career? What have you got to say about him? Yeah, fantastic, isn't he? Uh, he's been incredible. Uh, he's a uh, he's one hell of an athlete, really. Um, you know, and he's been fantastic for Wales and, and the Lions. Um, yeah, he's a, he's a credit, and uh, he'd probably go down as one of the greats, really, uh, in the front row in particular, you know, with his his attributes, his, his skill, and uh, his ability to go around the field and uh, and do so, uh, so many turnovers. So he'd be sorely missed, but uh, I'm sure he'd be looking forward to resting up his body. His body's probably uh, <laughs> taking quite some uh, beating over the years, shall we say. So, yeah, it, he's going to be missed, but he's a, he's a fantastic player, and um, I'm pretty sure you'll see him uh, back involved in rugby in some capacity. David, I'm going to leave it there, but thank you very much. No problem. Take care. That's David James, former Wales and Lions wing. Uh, before we speak to Paddy Wallace, why don't we have a look at the World Player of the Year nominations, uh, Roy? Fafta Clerk, Bowden Barrett, Rico Ioni, Johnny Sexton and Malcolm Marks. Well, Malcolm Marks, a good job. <laughs> <laughs> they possibly didn't vote, if they did vote at all, you know, on the weekend's performances. But... He's had a tremendous year. He's a, he's, a, he's a fantastic hooker, no doubt. 
he and Faf de Klerk, the seminal influences, I think, in the revival of South Africa, along, um, I would think, with uh, Willie Leroux. What do you make of um, Johnny Sexton's prospects? Oh, look, he's, he's a world-class individual, and mm-hmm. that's why he's, he's on that list of, of world-class players. I think when you look at it, Johnny Sexton, you know, winning the Pro 14 with Leinster, winning Europe with Leinster, winning the Grand Slam with Ireland, he is such a key component within all of that. He's, mm-hmm. He is Joe Schmidt's main man within that squad with regards to putting the product Joe Schmidt wants out onto the field. He's the conductor of, of the choir. He's got some incredibly talented guys around him, but he, he's exceptional. He is world-class. He's a real competitor. Uh, and what the way that he executes his role within that side fits it perfectly. And his, I think- his, his absence is one of the few things I think that will could derail Ireland's realistic chances of doing very well in the World Cup. I'm not saying that without him they couldn't, but I think they've got so much more when he is there, not just in terms of technique, but I think you mentioned it, his temperament as well. Yeah, absolutely. And we've, we've seen it, whether he's in the blue of Leinster or the green of Ireland, he is right in the middle of everything. And I think he manages to get the balance between the ultimate competitor who has got so much fight in him um, with, with the brain and, and rugby brain that understands how you go about winning rugby matches. And yeah, He's got he's got some outstanding rugby players around him, both with Leinster and with Ireland. But he's in the he's in the key decision making position to be able to drive whoever it is that he's playing for into a position to win rugby matches. And I don't think you can overemphasize his importance and how good he is at doing that. And there's no surprise that the teams that he is playing in are outstanding teams and they're they're winning titles. And the same could equally, uh, if not more so, be said of Bowden Barrett. What can you say about him? <laughs> What, what can you say about him that's not already been said? Yeah. I think he he just has everything. For me, his he you could put him anywhere in the backline almost. Maybe not so much scrum half, but you could put him anywhere in the backline, mm. and he would do a job for you, and he would do an outstanding job because he's got the pace of a wing and he's got the skill set of a of a fly half. He's he's got a very quick rugby brain as well. He's got he? an incredibly quick rugby brain. It's almost like he was a born into a family that were that were destined to to, <laughs> to play for the All Blacks you know the the three of them playing for for that All Black side and I I think he again he's got some brilliant rugby guys around him but at the same time when you look at him as an athlete mm-hmm. and I I just love watching him play because he plays such positive rugby he only kicks when he feels like he's got to kick mm-hmm. or when the kick is typically the right decision but he wants to doesn't run like the ball. kicking drop goals, does he? No, he doesn't. That's that's for sure. <laughs> Maybe but, we'll have to add that one because yeah. it might be important at some point. Look, I, if there is a weakness, I would say it's, it is his kicking and his goal kicking. I don't think he's in the top five goal kickers in the world. I I think he's he's a good kicker out of hand, but he doesn't have to kick the ball as much as some fly halves playing for other teams who rely on that do. Um, but I, I think. You know, I, I think his goal kicking just does let him down sometimes. I don't think his his kicking percentage is where he would he would want to be. He'll always want to be the best in the world at whatever he's doing. Well, Rico Ioni at the moment is in the top one of finishers, isn't he? Yeah, I mean that 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 is the long and short of it. A more devastating finish at the moment, you you can't think of, can you? 
Man, he's such a youngster as well. He's he's relatively new on the scene. I, I was watching the the All Blacks documentary series, and the uh, you had the the Lions in that, and that was his real his first real inclusion mm. in the All Blacks. And to think of that, and you know his progress and his strike rate in in the All Blacks jersey. He is an out and out finisher. He puts the fear of death into defences, and he's justifiably in that position. With the supply of ball he gets, if other wingers in the world got that, would they be as good as him? I'm not 100% sure, but he's all, he's playing in a very good team, isn't he? Of course he is. Now, look, all these things are so subjective. You could pick all of them. You could make cases for all of them. You've got to vote for somebody. I might actually be tempted, if I had a vote, to vote for Fafta Clerk, principally because I think the difference he's made to, what's well, let's face it, a year ago, South Africa were all over the place. Now, that quite honestly, had some a lot to do with the coaching, I think, in the end. And uh, Razi Rasmussen has done a lot to stabilise that. But he has been, for me, the fulcrum of virtually everything that South Africa have done well in the rugby championship. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think for me, as a, as a former scrum half, I always have a keen eye on those guys. Um, and with South Africa, you've typically got a bruising pack in front of you. You're going to get a decent stock of ball. Outside, I think Razi Erasmus is developing the game. There's loads of pace, there's loads of power. But within that, Faf de Klerk dictates everything. And the thing I love most about watching Faf de Klerk is that in a, a time whereby you have some scrum halves get to a ruck and look around for their options, the ball's there. And yes, quick ball, they're looking to get it up and away a lot of the time. Faf de Klerk seems to be one step ahead. He's already decided by the time he gets to the ball that it's half a second too long on the ground and he gets it up and away whether it's him running he's at, when he's at his effervescent best or getting it into the hands of runners around him he's a threat in the fringes his skill set his basics are very very good and he's just a live wire scrum half that just as a bundle of energy and brings the energy to everyone else in that, that 22 in the squad that he's playing for well, it's really interesting that you make that comment as a scrum half because whether it's instinctive or whether it is a decision-making on the run, it's equally impressive because I don't know of any scrum off at the moment who is as good at exploiting things down the narrow side, just seeing when it's on. Quite a lot of scrum offs, you, you get the feeling, well, they think, I've got to run now because I haven't run for a while and I have to endure the back row. He seems to be able to time it properly. And when there is a weakness there, when there is opportunity, he seems to spot it early. Yeah, he he deserves a lot of credit for that. I think there are teams who build that into their plan based on the skill set of the guys that they've got around. So I've, I've got no doubt Rassi Erasmus will have part of that to say to the wingers, stay alive. If we, if, even if we've got a seven or eight metre blindside, stay alive on that blindside rather than tracking on the, the tens inside shoulder on the open side because we know Faf might be able to stand up a, a prop and then it's a two-on-one with a winger. You're going to hold them. Then if you go open, you've still got options because you've held a couple of guys blindside. I just think, for me, I remember Brian Redpath when I was playing at Gloucester. Brushy would always say to me, scan on the way in, but if the ball is there to be played, get it up and away. Either either you with a little snipe or more often the way that we played with the midfielders that we had, it was up and away, 9-10, get it into 10's hands. Because believe me, the 10's all thank you for getting that ball half a second quicker. Yeah. As much as they also thank Faf de Klerk for the fact that the defence gets held by him on the inside, which also means that he probably gives the 10 mm-hmm. half a second longer because the defence are 
on wait for him ultimately before he passes it. So I think he's a he's a brilliant, brilliant operator. Well, time now to get an Irish perspective. We can speak to Paddy Wallace, the former Ireland and Ulster centre. Hello, Paddy. Evening, Brian. How are you doing? Okay, mate. Look, Jordan Lammer, twinkle toes. He did well. Did anyone actually earn the right, do you think, for a first-team choice against Argentina? I'm not sure. Once once, uh, Joe looks through the tape, there are certainly some strong performances. Uh, I think what Joe is most interested in is the depth that he's created now within the squad. And, and there is more competition for places, especially going into next year's World Cup. I think that's historically where Ireland have come up short, mm-hmm. is the depth, depth in the squad. I remember in 2015, Brian, whenever they were playing against Argentina, they were decimated by by some key names that uh, were ruled out through injury, the likes of O'Connell and Peter O'Mahony and Sean O'Brien and Jared Payne, to name a few. So if that presented itself again in the group stages, I don't think Ireland would be as troubled mm-hmm if they make it to the knockout stages. Ireland's autumn international rota is not as strong as it could have been. Do you think um, that was just an advent of fixed-year scheduling, or do you think Joe Schmidt wanted to, I don't know, want, did, he, did he want not this time to take the full complement on? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one. I think uh, there's probably a bit of politics, rugby politics going on, mm-hmm. considering they're over playing in Soldier Field in Chicago at the start of this period of matches and then they're, they're playing the USA at the end. Uh, certainly two tough games in between those with uh, Argentina this weekend and uh, the All Blacks the following weekend. So I'd imagine he'll get what he wants from this November series. He'll be able to blood as he has a number of young players in those bookend matches. But I think... The big test will obviously be against the All Blacks and to see if that uh, win two years ago in Chicago wasn't a fluke and uh, if they can turn them over at home. It's certainly going to be an epic test match and uh, as you can see by the selection in the squad who who travelled over to Chicago last weekend, uh, there weren't many of those, should you say, front front row players, front uh, top line players in that starting 15. Paddy, it's Rory here. Is there is there a danger with that in mind that uh, you know I was I was over in Ireland last week actually and just talking to to some of the the locals about the the autumn series coming up they they understood they would go across to to Chicago put in a performance it was a great opportunity for the likes of Larmer and Tag Byrne and Joey Carberry to get some time is there a danger with New Zealand just just a couple of games well one game away ultimately that Ireland take the take their eye off Argentina this weekend and and more so how much of an onus is being put on that New Zealand game in the run into the World Cup because many people are talking about it as a potential World Cup final Yeah I think as, as pundits and fans we, we're all getting excited about that test but uh, I think the squad is in very very capable hands under Joe's management not to take their eye off the ball yes they will be you know the coaching staff the management team will be working overnight behind the scenes, looking at the All Blacks Australia game and the Japan game and, and the English game the week before. So uh, they'll be doing all their homework. But as a man manager and, and a disciplinarian, I, Joe will not let the players take their eye off Argentina. They they will be as well prepared for Argentina this week as they will for the All Blacks the following week. And it, uh, it's probably given them another an extra week while the, the squad were away in Chicago to prepare uh, at home uh, for the Argentinian Challenge. 
Uh, just can I finally ask you this, uh, Paddy? Uh, Reese Ruddock, who captain the side, not a household name, certainly on this side of the Irish Sea. Do you, um, do you want to tell us a bit about him and where he fits into the overall plan, possibly for Schmidt? Yeah, uh, a great leader. He's been around Leinster from from a, a young age. I remember him joining up with uh, an Irish tour down in New Zealand and uh, comes from a great rugby pedigree. Uh, his father, who's coached uh, all around the British Isles. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a, a, a good squad member. He's he's been fantastic, but very understated with within the Leinster ranks for a number of years. I sort of you remember Shane Jennings type that was very 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 important uh, to the dressing room uh, and, and certainly didn't let you down on the pitch. Probably doesn't have the the explosive presence that uh, you know the likes of a Dan Levy or a or CJ Stander would have, but certainly he's that sort of glue player that you, you want within a squad. So he'll I'm sure he'll be. Uh, He's highly, highly respected, and I'm sure somebody that uh, Joe will be considering very strongly going forward into uh, the World Cup year. Paddy, we're going to leave it there, but thank you very much for joining us. That's great. No Thanks for having me. Paddy Wallace, the former Ireland and Ulster centre. If that is to be a rehearsal for a World Cup final, let's not get ahead of ourselves. But Ireland at home, can they win it? Yes, yes, they can. They've they've they showed at Soldier Field um, against the All Blacks that they can they can win against them, and they're one of the very few teams to to have shown that in in recent times. So, like I was I was getting excited about the game, talking about the Irish, uh, t- talking to the Irish about that match last week. There's just such a buzz mm-hmm. around the place about it. They they really fancy a go at it. I think is going to be a true measure of where they are. Let's be honest, New Zealand don't lose to many teams and they will hurt still from that yes. loss as as soldier field but you know they'll be travelling to dublin off the this is the end of the all black season so there you know there'll be some tired bodies mm-hmm. in there they've got a couple more games to play before the well they've got the england game to play before that so it's going to be hugely enticing and oh certainly as a neutral it'll be a great one to watch on to well i think one of the things as a, as a neutral again that you uh, look at that fixture and you think for the first time in a long, long time, when Ireland empty their bench, whatever you call them, substitutes, finishes or whatever, they are going to make a significant contribution because they're really good quality players. And when you look at the New Zealand bench, probably the equal of of what what can be brought on now, you can very, very rarely say that about any team that played in New Zealand. Yeah, the depth of both sides is so, so strong. And I think you saw that a little bit as Soldier Field with, with Ireland against Italy um, just, just at the Saturday, just gone. And see, you, we've, all, we've always known that, you know, Rory Best is such a key leader within that Irish team. But Sean Cronin had a good game. Tag Byrne, who's obviously had a fantastic season with the Scarlets, had, had his opportunity, scored a couple of tries. Jordan Larmer his 80th minute try to have that footwork that turn of pace ability to beat three or four defenders was absolutely outstanding particularly at that stage of the game and equally at half back I think that's the area that so many of the Irish and, and, and neutrals have spoken about you know what happens if Johnny Sexton and Conor Murray go down well actually Luke McGrath and Joey Carberry are, are pretty tidy operators themselves so mm-hmm. it might if that was to happen in the World Cup, and and I, I hope for Ireland that that doesn't happen, that you, you can still look to these guys, and they've got a load of experience at the top at the top end. Time now to speak to Gary Street, the Queen's Ladies and World Cup winning coach. Good evening, Gary. 
Good evening, Brian. How are you? Five wins on the bounce. Um, yeah. Are you where you want to be? Because you're not at the top of the league at the moment. Yeah, we're not. And I think that uh, the, the top four is so important though for us. I, I think that with with the playoff and, and you, you know, actually you don't get anything for finishing top these days at the uh, end of the regular season. So top four, top four is key. We're, we're starting to get into our stride of it now. We've had quite a few new players this season who are just starting to settle in. And, and you know, when we've had five wins on the bounce for the first team, we had four on the bounce for, the, for our A team. So um, we're starting to get into our stride, I think. What about uh, Loughborough Lightning, undefeated? Yep. But there's, a lot, there's been a lot of transfer activity all around the leagues in the first couple of seasons of the Premier 15s. What's been the difference there? Is it just that? Casey Dana McLean going there has no been one. huge. Yep. You know, she's my... You know, she's, She's my sort of like the, the player that, that changes changes games all over. She was my captain in the, in the World Cup for for no other reason than the fact that she can win games sort of almost single handedly. And she's an unbelievable player. And I think what what they've done, they've they've recruited her, put alongside Sarah Hunter. They produced a couple of Canadians. Um, a lot of the Litchfield, very successful side that was together a couple of years ago. They've they've attracted over there, and they've done a, they've done a cracking job. Um, I think the rest of us are gunning, gunning for them for further on the season, but they've had a brilliant start and fair play to them. They deserve a top spot, but um, yeah, it's a long season. There's, there's injuries, there's form, there's the Six Nations, there's the unavailability. So um, it's a long way to go, but they've been a, they've been a, a, a great credit to to the league and what they've done so far. Well, the Red Roses they have three internationals that are coming up. They start uh, this Saturday against the USA at the Alliance. Now I used to know uh, where the women's teams were in, in terms of pecking order. Canada, is second game, I believe, would at one point have been a, a far more difficult proposition than the USA. But how are those two North American teams, where, what are they lining up like at the moment? Massively in tra- transition. They've always been in the sort of top four, top five in the world, both USA and Canada and at World Cups. I don't think USA have ever been out of the top four. But they got um, they got a bit of a bit of a bashing by New Zealand in the week, uh, 67 something. Canada are, are sort of trying to transition their sevens program to the 15s. I think England will be too strong. I think they were uh, too streetwise, and um, I think we'll, we'll see that England will, will, will come out on top in the uh, the next couple of weeks. Hey Gary, it's Rory Lawson here. With Ireland as the as the third fixture, how much? Onus will therefore be put on that as a fixture, and how much has the the Tyrrells Premier League worked with being able to develop that depth and the, ultimately the selection decisions? Have they become significantly more difficult with the with the new system? Yeah, hugely. I, I think you know we we, we played Wasp with the Steve last night, and we had uh, England's number ones from Offaly and Riley against um, Claudia from from Wasps as, as the number two, and they went hammer and tong. The just the whole competition is better. The players are fitter, stronger, and I think that you know there's more Test match rugby. You know we're playing games at the Stoop now with you know over a thousand people. We're looking for the big crowd for a big game in in March for up to eight thousand for a, a, a women's standalone Premiership game, which is just extraordinary. And and, and definitely players getting better prepared for international rugby. And and uh, the Ireland game is going to be huge. And, and um, I think both sides are building towards that, and it'll be interesting what that that last game brings. Are the Red Roses looking set fair for the Women's Six Nations? I'm hoping so, as we all are. I, th- I think at the moment there's still that transition, there's still the 15s and 7s, which is trying to get a balance about what the squads look like. At the moment, there's the central contracts that 7s players have been offered, 15s players are being offered currently, and that'll be 
tied up by Christmas. So I think in the new year there'll, there'll be a, a, a fully professional England 15 squad, which I think will and dads just get stronger. But we'll, we'll know more probably January, February about what that starts to look like and the implications of full-time professional rugby players. OK, Gary, that's great. Uh, nice to speak to you again. Speak to you again soon. Thank you, Brian. Gary Street, the Queen's Ladies and World Cup winning coach with England. Right, let's have a look at next week's fixtures. Scotland, first of the three home games, you said. Fiji, they're a team, they should beat Fiji, shouldn't they? Reasonably comfortably. Yes, they should. But it, you know, when you take into account some of the, the players who are in that Fijian squad that have been named, there, there are plenty of threats around there. So Gregor Townsend, the way that Scotland play... We've got we've got great ability to be able to break down oppositions, even structured oppositions. Now, Fiji aren't normally the most structured defensively. There will be opportunities, but you're coming up against some players that, if you were to name a world fifteen for attack, they would be they would be right in there. When you think about Semi Radradra, Joshua Tuasova, Leone Nakarawa, those are guys who. Are, who blow people's minds week in week out when when they're playing, you know, their club rugby, and so we we'll need to be we we'll need to be on our game. Uh, we need to take opportunities and probably go a step up from from where Scotland were. It's like this, though, isn't it? For Scotland, those players are brilliant, provided the game's broken up and they will cut you to pieces if you kick badly, if you turn ball over. And I'm not saying that Scotland have to be boring. I'm not saying they have to go away from what they have been doing really well, which is, you know, moving the ball well, moving the ball with ambition. But that structure and the, the discipline that imposes is something that they need to keep throughout the game. The way that Gregor Townsend has Scotland playing is with ball in hand, looking after the ball, and is. It's a, it's a possession-based game whereby you do have to be disciplined. Your guys who don't get the credit are the guys who are working ruck to ruck, knock, knocking their socks off, just hit, hitting rucks, generating that ball that the other guys out there, you know, the likes of Finn Russell and Adam Hastings thrive on. They've got, Scotland have got a, a fantastic selection of scrum halves to build on. They've got, they've got depth in the midfield to select from and they've got a dangerous back three. Stuart Hogg's back in the squad, which, which will please everybody because he is a world-class operator. But yes, I think the game starts, as all games do, with the pack up front and, we, and Scotland will need good line-out possession, which typically we've had scrum dominance and then to get on the front foot because... When Scotland get into their full flow, the way that Gregor has them play, playing is so exciting to watch and is so difficult to defend. And I've said it coming into these in Autumn Internationals and I, I stand by it. When Scotland are on their game, I believe we can beat anyone in the world. And I think people understand that when we're not on our game, we're like any other team in the world, we're, we're vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wales, Australia. Now, Australia... I don't care what anyone says about Australia. They can play badly. But actually, when it comes to playing Northern Hemisphere opposition, they benefit from the fact that they play, I believe, at an extra pace in the rugby championship. They are always competitive, even um, when they've had significant reversals, because they do things better than a lot of Northern Hemisphere teams. And I think for Wales, it's about time that Wales put put them away, because Wales should at the, this stage of their World Cup development with the squad they've got be capable of doing that? Yeah, I think the All Blacks are a, 
a different level, I believe, with ball in hand to any other team in the world. But yeah. I remember when I was playing against Australia, they played they p- played attacking rugby different to almost anybody else. And the the movement game they played, the intelligence that they played with, they were a real challenge. They're, they're still finding their way a little bit for me. But if there's one team in the Northern Hemisphere that they've had massive dominance over, it is Wales. I think yeah. it's cer- 13 straight wins yeah. against Wales. And that's almost unfathomable if you're if if you look at the successful Welsh teams that they've come up against. Um so there'll be the majority of that Australian squad will therefore have experienced some great times against Wales and Wales will have to be on their mettle to be able to to be able to front up, albeit Australia are so inconsistent at the moment that you just don't know who's going to turn up. Mm. Well England New Zealand, you know who is going to turn up for New Zealand and it might look it could be a long Afternoon for England against New Zealand. If New Zealand hit their heights and England aren't anywhere near theirs, then, you know, I fear for them. But actually, one of the things that England are able to do at Twickenham, they use this scrap quite well. And I think they might well do, like a lot of teams this year against New Zealand, they might well hang in there for the odd, you know, the first 50 minutes. After that, we don't know. But I think that's probably their best hope. Yeah, I'd say so. And look, as I said right at the top of the show, the performance was insignificant compared to the result yes. against South Africa. But if England go in at half time, having had 22% territory and 35% possession against the All Blacks, yeah. they're probably going to be 25 points down. Yeah. But England are good. They raise their game against the All Blacks. Everybody raises their game against the, the best team in the world. So... It's just a massive challenge for for Eddie Jones's squad without the likes of Billy and Mako Vunipola because those guys are so important to the go forward. You can't give the All Blacks too many opportunities and certainly can't give them the same number of opportunities that South Africa had because whether they're on their di- their game or not on the day, they'll take a lot of them. So it's going to have to kick, kick more precisely, in my opinion. Kick more precisely and try and dominate the All Blacks up front, but. Again, it's a, it's a different challenge to what it was in, in, in past years whereby England had the best pack of forwards in the world. Mm. They'll have to kick accurately when they kick. They'll have to keep a hold of ball a lot better. And for me, I think it's... They'll, tr- they'll have to try and force the All Blacks to play a, a tempo and a, a, that they're not comfortable with. And I'm not even sure what that tempo is. But they'll need to try and get on the right side of the referee because discipline, for me, England need to win the penalty count to be able to get... And the they've not done that win. very often recently. Yeah, very true. And, and you can't the, afford to go down to 14 against the No, All they Blacks. can't. And the final thing I'd say is, look, it was quite a while ago when Eddie Jones coached the Wallabies side that beat them five times, but he has done that. Very few coaches can say they've recorded one or two uh, wins over an all-black side. So he's, he personally doesn't have that uh, mindset that he's beaten before it starts. He said he's got a plan. I don't know what it is. It may work, it may not do. But at least they've got that factor you know, in, you know, to help them. He'll have been thinking about this game for probably the last couple of years, to be honest, because yeah. uh, England haven't had a shot at the All Blacks for a couple of years. And knowing the, uh, the rivalry between Australia and New Zealand... Mm-hmm. Eddie Jones will be 
as desperate to win on Saturday as any of the players within that changing room. And for him, that's why the relief of Saturday's win is so important because they've got that result. The performance was insignificant. Now they've got a result. They kick on and they're going in as massive underdogs. Yeah. They were underdogs against the Springboks. Saturday, they are massive underdogs against the All Blacks. Nobody. I mean, I'm tempted to say to they've nothing to lose, but they have got things to lose because if they you know, come badly unstuck, that won't be good for them either. But to a certain extent, no one is expecting them to win. No one's expecting them really to get that close. So, may as well give it a go. Absolutely. And believe me, I've been, I've been in that scenario plenty <laughs> of times as, as a Scotsman. And it, dri- it drives you on. Yes, things could go wrong. But at the same time, England could lose the game playing outstandingly well. Mm. And they come out of it with credit. Because then, then you add to the narrative the missing players, the guys who can come back in as they build towards the World Cup, the the depth that Eddie Jones can have off the back of it. So it'll be a, it'll be a really fascinating to watch on. Um, I think the All Blacks will have too much, but at the same time, uh, Twickenham, you just never know. Well, that's all we have time for this week on Brian Moore's Full Contact with The Telegraph and Remy Martin. Thank you to my co-host Rory Lawson and producer Abby Patterson. Make sure you're subscribed via your app of choice and please leave a review too so that more people can find out about us. Good night. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2 and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, (laughs) you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.